Think back to a time in your life when a new piece of technology started to gain some serious attention. Maybe it was the desktop computer or the iPhone. How did people around you respond to it? There was probably some skepticism at first. Questions like, why should I use this thing? Or even, is it safe? Back in the 19th century, you'd hear similar thoughts about another booming innovation, the railroad. Like all major technologies, it can evoke both fear and extravagant hope. That's David Nye. He's an historian of technology. He talked with us from his office in Denmark on a piece of technology that, ironically, is becoming more obsolete these days, a landline telephone. I spoke with Nye about the railroad's influence on American society and how the public responded with hope and fear. The fear was partly just going so fast. There were people who were afraid that it would uh, cause dislocation of the muscles or the bones in the body. You would get a railway spine, some people called it. Uh, There was a fear of um, the the speed being uh, bad for the nervous system. There's at least one or two clergymen who, who made these speeches about how, well, if God had meant for us to go that fast, he would have designed the world differently. The time after midnight was excessively wearisome as we enjoyed the English-style cars with eight on a seat riding backward and eight more facing these backward riders with feet interlocked and one lantern as a lamp to two such satanic English-style compartments and the glass sliding rack rattling as the springless cars rattled and thumped over the strap iron rails spiked to the long sleeper logs that made the track. Yet, to me and to most of us, this first night and ride in the cars was sublime as an excitement and a novelty. But of course the extravagant hopes were that you would be able to knit a very large nation together. There was a fear in the early years of the American Republic that maybe it was going to be hard to keep such a large landmass together as one country. And then the hopes were often expressed in speeches, especially when they opened railways. They'd say, well, this will make our communication with, and then you would plug in the name of wherever it was, the South or the West or or Canada or someplace, but there would be this tighter bond. And there's this belief that the more rapid and regular the communication would be, uh, the better people would get along or understand one another. There'd be this interchange. The same idea you get, of course, with the telephone later or the... And the World uh, Wide Web today. Yeah, the World Wide Web. Yeah, you've heard this before. It doesn't always seem to happen, but uh, <laughs> but it seems it seems reasonable when you hear it. You think, well, yeah, it should be better. We can see each other more often. What were some of the longer-term concerns about railroads, which really did begin to uh, reshape the landscape and the economy and and politics? There's two kinds of um, impacts or or effects, you might say. The the first is just the encounter with the thing itself. But then, as you say, there's the longer-term effects. And people who are, for example... uh, in other forms of transportation, immediately see the railway as a threat. Mm-hmm. You know, they worry that uh, they're going the canals will no longer be able to compete. But it's uh, it, it's more the uh, the way that the railways tend to dominate communities, uh, especially as they get out into the middle west, and they're not going to from one well-known city to another. They're actually creating the cities. They're deciding where they're going to build a town. Right. 
and the town becomes a kind of a creature, you might say, of the, the railroad, that they can ruin a town by not stopping there, or they can create a new town where they want one, so that the economic might of the railway is something that starts to worry and upset people. That These are monopolistic by nature. Well, speaking of trains, a lot of people were taking them to see the latest thing, all these world's fairs that were popping up all over the United States at the end of the century. You're absolutely right. In fact, I don't think a World's Fair was ever held someplace where they didn't have train service. Uh, And very often, they're fairly new cities which are aspiring to become great or well-known. So, for example, Omaha has a World's Fair in 1898. Omaha is, of course, the place where the the railway across the United States goes through. Mm -hmm. And uh, they imagined in 1898 that they were on the brink of becoming the next Chicago Technology is actually, in a sense, part of why you ever have World's Fairs. They tend to feature inventions and to use technologies as one of the selling points for the visitor. You know, why should you go to this? Well, we have something new. And, and one of the things, of course, is railways, which are the way to get to the fair, but they're also displaying the latest improvements. And uh, later on, there are things like the telephone is first exhibited to the public at this Philadelphia Fair of 1876, or the electric light is exhibited in a Paris uh, World's Fair, and then shortly after in the United States. Well, let's, let's pick one of those wonders. Electricity. Can you shed some light on that for us? <laughs> That's the metaphor, shedding light, yeah. Well, uh, the, the first electric lights are displayed in... Um, few city centers, and then they quickly are picked up by the World's Fair's organizers because they have the obvious virtue that with good lighting, you can keep the fair open more hours and generate more customers, in a sense. You can get people to come more. But then they realize you can also have spectacular effects with electric light, that the fairground looks one way in the daytime, but when you light it up at night, it has a quite different appearance depending on the skill of the lighting engineer. The early fairs would be kind of garish by our modern taste. You know, they'd be very strong arc lights. It would be so bright you could not really look at them. Mm-hmm. Gradually, they actually scale down the size of the bulbs. So they have a, and I'm not exaggerating, they, they have 30,000, 50,000 lights uh, you know, in a single wow. courtyard, and they're all very small. They're just four to eight watts. And what we are familiar with is, if you think of what Times Square used to look like with a lot of individual bulbs, yep. and you could get special effects, flashing things on and off or different colors. And that was much more effective, it turned out. The public really liked that. And so that people would sometimes come back to the fairground in the evening because they wanted to see it in its new guise. What were some of the concerns? You talked about people literally being afraid that they might be injured by going too fast the first time they rode in a train. Were there equivalent concerns about electricity? Well, the fear of electricity was more of its, um, that you could get an electric shock, for example. It actually cuts both ways because there's a big interest in electrical medicine by which they meant that they literally gave you a very mild shock or they sort of plugged you in right. uh, and, and gave you a, a little juice, <laughs> recharged your battery, as they would put it. But there were, of course, people who would suddenly be killed by uh, touching the wrong wire or doing the wrong thing in a factory. And so they, they knew that electricity could be deadly. Electricity is eccentric, 
and shocking. Its shocks will make the cars jump off from the tracks and endanger the lives of passengers. Water is a conductor, and rain will divert the electric current from the wires. Collisions and appalling accidents will inevitably occur. The rails will be electrified, and horses stepping on them will be shocked and fall. I suppose one of the ultimate signs of having made it (laughs) as a technology is becoming a verb, right? I faxed you something, I Googled. Uh, In in the case of electricity, uh, it really hit the trifecta because there are a whole series of metaphors built around electricity. Could you share some of those with us? Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, it starts before the electric light uh, they, in the late 19th century, they would talk about a, uh, if a boy and a girl or a young man and woman were uh, courting, they would talk about they were sparking. <laughs> really? They said so they were sparking? They were sparking. That was a common expression. And, and of course, that suggests that these are two bodies which are electrified. Most of my dates were kind of unplugged, David, but I never really <laughs> achieved spark well, level. <laughs> Although some of them must have worked out. but uh, Eventually. Yeah. But also there's this idea of the body being a kind of a storage battery which can be recharged huh. or can be uh-huh. run down. He needs to go have a vacation to recharge his batteries, you know. And in some instances, get amped up. Yeah, get amped up, you know. People would drink coffee and they would say, this is my morning battery acid. And so there's a huge number of these metaphors. Uh, so, David, when these metaphors start popping, does that mean we've simply completely naturalized uh, what was once a very almost frightening technology? Or or have we simply pushed some of those fears to the deeper recesses of our minds? Well, that's a very interesting question. So with electricity, I think it is true that we're in a sense naturalizing the technology. We're, we're identifying with it. We're taking on its characteristics or what we think of as its characteristics but you're also correct, I think, to see that, well, there's, there can be some fears. I mean, electricity's got some scary properties, so it's not all to the good. It's the same thing when we talk about the mind uh, and in terms of the computer, which is, by the way, interesting. It's, it's all the mind. Electricity is much more the body. But there is always, the, in a sense, the incorporation of that technology into us it incorporates also some of those fears as well as some of the excitement and the hopes. David Nye is a professor of American Studies and the History of Technology at the University of Southern Denmark. He's the author of many books, including American Technological Sublime, 